Greetings and welcome to episode 13 of Beyond Wasya. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today we have a fascinating topic. Of course, they're all fascinating, as I'm sure you've come to expect by now. Religion in ancient China. And if you know me, you know that every single time you hear me use the word China, I actually intend to use it as a shorthand for Huaxia. So our topic today is really religion in the ancient Huaxia cultural sphere. Okay, now most courses or most introductions to religion in ancient China will introduce it um, sort of relatively straightforward by talking about the three major religious traditions. Uh, you'll, You'll talk about the official doctrine of Taoism, Buddhism, Confucianism, and then you'll have a little takeaway point in which they'll say uh, these all sort of interact and borrow and share elements of each other with the other religions. Um, I don't like to approach it that way. Okay, I like to approach the study or the, the, the learning about religion in ancient China from the perspective of class rather than distinct religions. Okay, The way that we're going to talk about this today is we're not going to start off with Confucianism, Buddhism, Taoism. We're going to talk about how all the classes in society interacted with these religions in different ways. Okay, Because when you think about Buddhism and it comes at you as a coherent whole, what you don't realize is that you're interpreting really only what 1% of the people ever knew about Buddhism, okay? The official orthodox doctrine of the religion as it was communicated and recorded in scrolls written down, okay? That knowledge was held and retained and disseminated by only the literate practicing clergy, okay? The vast majority of human beings um, would probably be very unaware of the specific details of the official doctrine of their religion, okay? And so I like to make this distinction when we learn about religion. And so that's why the way we're going to talk about this is we're going to talk about three different social classes, all right? The practitioners, the patronizing elites, not patronizing in the sense that they look down on someone, uh, patronizing in the sense that they dispense patronage, support, financial, uh, political support for the religious practitioners, and then finally the illiterate masses who often get left behind um, in most discussions of religion that really only focus on the 1% of the literate practitioners and the patronizing elites. Now, the practitioners are, as I've said, their defining characteristic is that they're literate, they oversee a literary canon, you know, sutras, Bibles, the Quran, whatever it might be, and they say that this written um, text is an infallible authority with origins in the superhuman, in the uh, uh, not of this world, Um, These practitioners are either recruiting or trying to build the size of their constituency or their following. And then finally, they have a political and economic agenda, which is easy to forget. Okay, yes, the priest, the monk, the Buddhist monk, the Taoist priest, uh, the Christian, you know, priest, whatever it might be. uh, Yes, they are probably sincere believers, or at least they were at one time. All right. Um, But as they gained a larger flock, a larger following, 
and took over the leadership of large institutions, churches, monasteries, temples, they came to manage a significant amount of wealth and through that wealth, political influence. And they were very much aware of that. Okay, I like to think of the religious practitioners sort of like, you know, modern day politicians. Oh, at one point, every politician truly believed in trying to do good and wanting to improve their country and whatnot. But as they rise in the ranks of power, they become more invested in certain interest groups and alliances and professional networks. Um, And when they get to the very top, it's very, very cynical. Okay, religious practitioners are like that in a sense as well. Politicians understand law, usually, at least in America. The religious practitioners understand the sacred texts, and they use their authority, their monopoly, really, over that knowledge uh, to recruit large following that then submits money, uh, you know, uh, donations, quote-unquote donations. Um, And then they use this wealth and power that they've accumulated to influence political affairs in the secular world. Okay? Now, before we go any farther, what is religion then? Okay? What, what are these people um, claiming to be doing? And what is the ultimate source of their mastery of the knowledge of religious uh, practice? Well, a religion is a prescription for human norms and behavior and values that is founded on a belief in a superhuman order. One more time. Religion is a prescription for human norms of behavior and values founded on belief in a superhuman order. Okay? Things that are not of this world that you can't see. Alright? And within this definition, there are two main distinctions. Humanist religions and millenarian religions. Now, humanist religious practitioners worship humans as unique and sacred All right, to a much greater extent than any other religion, the humanist religions will say, we don't believe in ghosts, and we're not superstitious, okay? We keep our distance from that stuff. Humans, they say, are the true sacred beings with the true uh, limitless potential to improve the world that we live in right here and now. Humans determine the fate of the world. Therefore, the doctrine of a humanist religion is interested in finding, training, developing, and then elevating into positions of power the best humans in the world as a means of improving the whole human race. This is Confucianism. Confucianism, in this sense, is a humanist religion. The Confucians oftentimes will brag about how they keep their distance from ghosts, and we don't really believe in ghosts and whatnot. Okay? It's humans that are important. Now this sounds, you know, you're probably listening to this going, wow, humanist religion sounds great. None of that hocus-pocus mumbo-jumbo and whatnot. (laughs) Think again. All right, the Confucians are ritual specialists, and they make their bread and butter through rituals, and a lot of those rituals are (laughs) hocus-pocus, at least from our perspective today. Okay, and then also think the extreme flip side of Confucianism, other humanist religions. Some scholars group communism and Nazism. Okay, I, you know, uh, uh, belief systems in which you say we're secular. We don't believe in 
superstitious nonsense and spirits and ghosts and whatnot. We're rational people. The Confucians said that we're rational, you know. Um, all the sure philosophers after Moltze, he wasn't Confucian, but, you know, they took after his lead and they prided themselves on being logical. We prove our points through logic. It makes sense. Okay. Um, you know, and then communists and Nazis also say that humans have the divine potential within, and we need to elevate the best humans among us into positions of power, and then give those humans unlimited power to improve the world. And then by the same token, there are humans that are inferior and are not the best among us, and they can be targeted within a humanist religion, uh, humanist religious um, sphere. They can be targeted for removal because they bring down the rest of us. All right, so that's humanist religions, and that's the category that I would put Confucianism into. We also have millenarian religions. And in this category, within our East Asian context, we're thinking Buddhism, Taoism, and Islam. All right? The millenarian religions have a constant engagement with holy scriptures that are imagined to be inspired or perhaps even written by superhuman, uh, supernatural beings. Not necessarily it's even humans who provided the content for this text. Maybe humans copied it down, the scribes. Um, but the inspiration, the content, came from another world. Okay, Unlike with the humanist Confucians, in which they'll say, no, Confucius wrote this. Humans wrote this. Identifiable, nameable humans wrote this. But the millenarian religions have a constant engagement with these sorts of holy scriptures, with, with these sorts of holy scriptures. And they say we need to salvage the corrupt world that we live in, which will be destroyed one day. Okay? We live in a corrupt world. We are fallen people. The Confucians also said we're fallen people. But we live in a corrupt world, and one day it's all going to be destroyed. Right, the coming of some, you know, the coming of the Buddha, the return of Christ, whatever it is, one day they're coming back, and the world will be destroyed then, and only the true believers will be saved. So here's what you have to do. Here's your 10-step program to save yourself and make sure you're on the right side of morality, of spirituality, when this world is destroyed, and the non-believers will be swept away. Now, the practitioners of both of these traditions are similar in having an unquestioned faith in inviolable texts, infallible texts that reference the ancient mythical world. As I've said several times in previous episodes, they believe that everything worth knowing was already known. It's in the text, and if you don't understand it, if you can't make sense of it, it's your fault. It's not the fault of, you know, the person who put this down originally or faulty transmission of this text being copied over hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, if you don't get it, if it doesn't make sense, if it doesn't solve your problems, it's your fault, not the fault of the infallible text. This is why some scholars refer to the advent of modern science as the discovery of ignorance. Uh, you know, the realization that there are things in this world that we don't know, and they're not unimportant. They are very important, and we need to understand them. That's a very different mindset than what we find in the pre-modern world throughout the world. Okay. Now, the millenarian traditions, the practitioners, all right, the priests, the monks, the specialized literate elites, 
who then who 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 squeeze knowledge and information out of these sacred texts and then use it to recruit, maintain, and guide the activities of their followers for political and economic ends. They are the ones who um, are conversant in specialized discourses. Right? They're the ones who know everything about the Ten Commandments, the rituals of the Eucharist and whatnot, uh, karma, if we want to get back to East Asia, uh, what is karma, how does it work, uh, what's it going to be like when you're reborn in different lives, uh, the levels of hell, the levels of heaven, how do you get into this level or that level, depending on what you do, what can you expect to find when you get there. Um, they're the ones who know it all about the stories of compassionate supernatural beings, uh, saints, in the Western tradition, very often. In the Eastern tradition, your equivalent of saints are often what we call bodhisattvas, all right, from the Buddhist tradition. Uh, but Taoism is going to borrow a lot of this as well. Bodhisattvas, uh, 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 beings, humans that have uh, achieved the qualifications for nirvana, for the extinction of existence and the state of perfect bliss, but they decide to postpone their nirvana in order to, you know, demonstrate their compassion, because that's how they got to the gate of nirvana in the first place, because they were so compassionate. Um, and they decided to go back and help shepherd less fortunate humans towards a better future. Bodhisattvas intervene in the affairs of humans. All right, they're right on the verge of becoming immortals, but they decide to use their powers to get involved in human affairs and help out the good people and punish the bad people, all right? It's the literate religious practitioners, the monks, the priests, who know these stories and reproduce them in speeches, okay? Uh, they know everything about the lives of the Buddha, the acts of Lao Tzu, the length of kalpas, you know, the, the length of time of the universe that we live in between its creation and its destruction, all these sorts of things. Okay, and if you're more familiar with the Western tradition, this is the sort of thing, you know, you know all, all about the Ten Commandments or what you do on this holy day or that holy day and whatnot. All right, the vast majority of human beings who have ever identified as religious believers at one time or another in human history were illiterate and did not understand these sorts of specialized discourses with any degree of reliability or specificity. Okay, most people, if, you, if, if they had to take a test, saying, okay, now you really have to understand what are the seven holy truths? What are, you know, the, the, the six sins of humankind and whatnot? Most people would do pretty poorly on those tests. Okay. Uh, it's usually only the literate religious practitioners who would do very impressive on tests like that. Now, these practitioners leverage their specialized knowledge about the spiritual world to obtain worldly, political, and economic power. Like the sure philosophers that we discussed before, they are the sole arbiter of a system of morality that others can access for a fee. Okay? Maybe not necessarily money fee, although it is often a money fee for many people in the form of donations, quote-unquote donations again. Um, you know, oftentimes it can be services, it can be, uh, you know, uh, uh, acts of recruitment of other people, whatever it might be, okay? But you have to do something. You have to contribute somehow in order to access this system of spiritual salvation and morality. And in exchange for this fee, you gain entry into the system with a range of social, political, and economic benefits, all right? 
Um, now, oftentimes the religious practitioners will become fabulously wealthy. All right, they oversee monasteries, they oversee temples, they get a lot of monetary contributions from both elites and from the illiterate commoners, and they are able to use that to pursue worldly wealth and power. Remember what I talked about the politicians earlier. At one point, sure, they're all true believers, but by the time they get into such a powerful position of authority, leading their own monastery, their own temple, their own church, whatever it might be, um, they are, for all intents and purposes, they are political actors on par with kings and emperors and dukes and whatnot. They just cloak their power in a much more righteous, uh, moral, spiritual guise than the non-religious practitioners. Now, after the practitioners, we have the patronizing elites. Okay, the patronizing elites are you know the top one percent of the upper crust of society. All right, these are the kings and the emperors and the empresses and whatnot. All right, and the landlords and they, their interaction with religion is to try and reflect, display, and protect their existing positions. Because they already have it pretty good. They already have a lot of wealth and power. They want to access, they want to interact with the institutions of religion as a way of consolidating the power that they already have, uh, displaying their power in a religious guise to the rest of the population, And then sometimes to use religious networks to help them create new alliances. And oftentimes get their subjects, the illiterate masses, on board with their policies. Through, with with the help of the religious practitioners that the elites will now patronize. These are the people that the religious practitioners hope to gain as patrons. Which is why we call them the patronizing elites. The religious practitioners, the priests, the monks, they tell the elites... They tell the emperor, they tell the empress, they say, you can occupy a privileged position in my system. I will commission a mural and give speeches to the people in which I portray you as the reincarnation of this or that Buddhist being. You'll be portrayed in both my words and in art, artistic creations that I will oversee you'll be portrayed as a bodhisattva. Okay? In exchange for that support, in exchange for making an enormous donation to my monastery, okay, you will get earthly prestige, PR, public relations, and a better fate in the afterlife, if you really believe that, which they probably did, which they probably did. Let's, Let's not be too cynical here. All right? I'll make sure that through my spiritual authority, you enter the highest level of heaven after you die. All right. Religion also was extremely important in a political sense in helping to seal political alliances. All right. And this is often the case with many of the inter-Asian nomadic and semi-nomadic peoples as well. Um, For instance, Buddhism played an enormous role in solidifying alliances between Mongol and Tibetan peoples, various Mongol tribes, and Tibetan uh, uh, Tibetan Buddhism. And in fact, Buddhism, you could say, this special bond uh, with Tibetan Buddhism being circulated among many of the Mongols, 
um, actually played a very important role in ultimately integrating Tibet into the modern Chinese state. Because originally it was the Manchu Qing dynasty who were allied with the Mongols, fighting other Mongols, the Western Mongols. And the Western Mongols, after they were defeated, fled into the embrace of their Tibetan Buddhist allies, spiritual allies that they already had long connections with. And it was because of that that the Manchus decided um, our enemies are connected to the Tibetan Buddhists. We have to integrate Tibet as well, or at least tame it somehow, neutralize the Tibetan threat. Because it's not just the Tibetans, it's also the Mongols with, with whom they have a Buddhist bond. Um, and that's one of the reasons why you will have uh, 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 the last imperial dynasty making such a significant effort to bring Tibet into the fold. I wouldn't say closely integrated, but you know the patron-priest relationship that you'll see between the Manchu emperor and the Dalai Lama uh, is something that begins in the 18th century as a result of the Buddhist connection with the Mongols. And the Manchu Qing emperor will also build a Tibetan Buddhist Lama temple in Beijing, uh, the Yonghe Gong that is in Beijing to this day and is a major tour tourist site that was for the use of the Dalai Lama and the Panchen Lama when they made visits to Beijing. And also many Mongol elites who were Buddhist as well, uh, you know, had specific belief in the Tibetan version of Buddhism. Now, it's true that a few elites... A few of these patronizing elites will have, you know, an amateur or even a very, you know, uh, uh, involved interest in what we might refer to as philosophical Taoism or Buddhism. Okay, with Taoism talking about the way, in, Bud in Buddhism, oftentimes it might be karma or um, Buddhist metaphysics about the nature of this world. Remember Zhuangzi, uh, uh, you know, uh, in the Taoist tradition. Uh, analyzing the very fabric of our reality and how we interpret that. That's what I would refer to as philosophical Taoism. There's also a philosophical Confucianism and a philosophical Buddhism uh, that I would say is different from sort of the spiritual version of these religions that is peddled among the illiterate masses. Okay, And you will see in the historical record, you'll see several elites. It's not common. They're still a minority. Uh, who will take a very, very serious interest in this. In my own research on 20th century China, there is actually a governor of the province that, that I often study, Xinjiang in the far northwest, Yang Zhenxin. Um, he's he, he, he's a, a Chinese governor of the province. And in addition to all his telegrams and political writings and whatnot, he also maintained a diary on his thoughts while reading Lao Tzu, the classic of virtue and the way. Okay, that would be his interest, a serious interest in philosophical Taoism. All right, Yang Zhenxin would have re uh, regarded himself first and foremost as an upright Confucian official, and he never would have let anyone think that he believes in ghosts and superstition and, you know, these sorts of things. Okay, he had an interest in Taoist metaphysics, right, the, the, the Zhuangzi sort of stuff. Most elites, however, were not like him. Most elites were generally unreflective of the deeper meaning of religious rituals and texts. All right, they leave that to the religious practitioners. I'm not going to read the whole 2,000-page Bible. You're out of your mind. I'm not going to read the entire Diamond Sutra. You read that, and then I'll give you money or political influence uh, when you sort of shower your approval over me 
as someone who is publicly recognized as an authority on these sacred texts. But I'm not going to learn those things myself. Are you crazy? That's a lot of work. All right. The elite simply want to play a privileged role in the cosmology of various religions and make sure everyone sees them doing it. Okay? They want the most powerful monk in the city to commission a Buddhist mural in which the emperor or, uh, you know, the mayor of the city is portrayed as a bodhisattva. All right? Uh, a, a, a superhuman being, a supernatural being. And then everyone's going to see that. The whole city will walk by and they'll see this mural and they'll say, oh, that's the mayor of the city. That's the emperor. And that really reaffirms their worldly authority. Right? You don't overthrow a super, a, a, you don't overthrow an emperor who also is portrayed as a supernatural being with supernatural powers. The elites are not trying to change the world or break into a new lucrative role in their life like many of the lower classes are. They already have an enviable position in society. Religion is just a means to reinforce and strengthen and consolidate and maybe make incremental gains to that position. Okay, And it's going to be this union of religious professionals, the practitioners, and the patronizing elites that ultimately is going to be responsible for producing most of the visible manifestations in space of religion that are documented in the historical record, what we think of as Chinese religion. All right, for instance, the public art displays. If you go to China, many of the tourist sites that you can go visit today well, not just China, anywhere, Japan, Korea, whatnot, they, they exist all over East Asia. All right, things like the Longman Grottoes, the caves at Dunhuang, the cave murals at Dunhuang. Um, these are public religious displays that anyone can go see. They're, they're often outdoors, all right, carved into limestone cliffs. And there'll be carvings of images of the Buddha, tens of thousands of them, each one carved Someone has donated money to, to have that carved, and in return, they get merit. They get spiritual merit um, attached to their name, and everyone gets to see that, okay? Um, the guardians of the gates of hell and heaven will be carved into the cliffside, and someone paid for that. It's very expensive. The artists who did that were patronized by the elites, okay? So public art displays are a result of this union between the religious practitioners and the patronizing elites who provide the money for them. All right, they're both getting something out of it. They both want to leverage their influence over the illiterate masses. They also will be responsible for the construction of what we might think of as showcase architecture in, in, in the cities. Things like temples, things like mosques, things like stupas, uh, where holy relics of spiritual beings from the old days are su supposedly kept inside and it's regarded as a, a, a holy site where you can give a prayer and it might get answered. Uh, pagodas. Pagodas are sort of those tall towers that uh, you see in many Chinese cities. If you ever go to the city of Xi'an, uh, the Big Goose Pagoda and the Little Goose Pagoda are some of the oldest pagodas. I think they might be the oldest pagodas in the world, or at least very close to it. Um, those also will dominate the skyline. They'll always be the tallest building in pretty much any city throughout East Asia will be a Buddhist pagoda. 
All right, that's very expensive. These things can be 10, 12, 13 stories high. That's extremely difficult to do in the old days. All right, they're architectural mar marvels. And the patronizing elites are paying for those things to be created. And in, in return, they expect to be acknowledged, publicly acknowledged in ostentatious ways that they are the ones who supported that. And of course, they have to work with the religious practitioners in order to do that to make sure that their public image is maintained as the sponsor of these religious construction projects. Uh, they will also be responsible for creating many of the things, religious manifestations that will exist on holy mountain sites. Talk a little bit more about that later on. Um, but things like Mount Tai, there, you know, many mountains are often referred to as uh, holy sites where you make a pilgrimage to the mountain. And as you climb to the top of the mountain, there'll be various temples and steles and whatnot uh, the religious practitioners and the elites are also paying for those things, and they want the pilgrims to see it and remember who is responsible for the creation of these holy sites. All right. They also will be the ones, the only ones really, who are going to be constantly engaging the major canonical texts, the, the, the Confucians, as we already know. Uh, their canonical text will be the books of the Shur, things like the Analects, the Shunzi, um, the books of the Zhou dynasty, the book of documents, the book of odes, those sorts of things. Um, the Taoists are going to have Lao Tzu, Zhuangzi, uh, various divination, um, feng shui type manuals. Uh, the Buddhists are going to have their sutras, the Diamond Sutra, the Lotus Sutra. The, 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 the Muslims are going to have the Quran. All right. All these represent an elite vision for how the world should be how the world should operate. And a corollary, corollary to this is how the rest of the population should act. Right, that's the motivation. These people, the patronizing elites and the religious practitioners, they can't, they can't represent more than a few percentage points of the entire population. All right, they are working together to ensure that they present a believable and attractive and enticing image for the rest of the society to get on board. All right, to get on board with what the one, two, three percent of society wants them to do. And this is the religious face of this program. Now, outside of this formal public religion that is geared towards a political and economic agenda, we also have something that we often refer to as the cult of the dead. Right, the cult of the dead, which will eventually merge with Confucian ancestor worship, um, seems to be the most common and enduring pre-Buddhist view of the afterlife among all those who had privileges worth preserving. If we're trying to think of a timeline of when various religions uh, begin to integrate into the religious mainstream in East Asia, uh, you know, Taoism, you're looking at the first millennium BC, Confucianism, first millennium BC, uh, Buddhism is probably the latest in that sense. All right, we're talking zero to 200 AD. Um, Islam is going to be another thousand years after that, more or less. Um, but Islam is going to be unique among all the religions of China and not integrating as much into the mainstream like Buddhism, Taoism, and Confucianism will do. Um, so before you get Buddhism, which is going to introduce a whole new vibrant afterworld that has not yet existed in Huaxia religious imagination previous to this. What you have before Buddhism 
when you get your karma and, you know, being reborn into new afterlifes and all that, is you get the cult of the dead. Now, the cult of the dead basically meant that your afterlife, there is a life after this life, all right? When you die, it's not like that's just it. You go to a next life, but there's almost zero imagination deployed here in what that next life looks like. The afterlife is basically a carbon copy of your real life, okay? Um, whatever you, whatever job you had, whoever your wife was, uh, whatever you did while living, you're going to be doing basically the same thing when you're dead. You're just simply going to be on the other side. You're not going to be here anymore. You're going to be there, and you can't interact with people who are living anymore. But there wasn't a whole lot of imagination in how the afterlife di differs from the real life. It was basically a carbon copy, so you need to prepare for it this afterlife by surrounding yourself in your tomb with material mirror images of everything you had while you were alive. Because you got to take everything with you and make sure that you have all the supplements and things that you need uh, to carry out your duties and live your life uh, in much the same way as you did when you were alive. Okay. Now, the most important aspect of the cult of the dead was making the transition between the living world and the other world successfully. Okay, you want to ensure that passage to the next world is done properly and definitively so the dead won't come back. That's the basis of so many wonderful short stories and popular tales about uh, uh, ghosts and whatnot. Um, it's ghosts coming back because something is wrong. You know, they died in a horrible way, and no one knows that it was actually a homicide and not just getting sick and dying. Someone murdered them, or whatever it may be. Uh, there's a moral wrong that needs to be righted. Or perhaps it's just you didn't fulfill, if you're, you know, thinking in Confucian terms, if you didn't fulfill the proper rites for your funeral for grandpa, grandpa is going to be, you know, ill at ease in, in his next life, and it's not going to be right. And it's not going to be a carbon copy of the life he had in this world. And, he's, and Grandpa's going to come back. And he's going to spook you, you know, and send you signs that you need to make this right. You didn't do the proper rites when I died. Maybe you didn't do the period of mourning long enough. You were supposed to mourn for, what, 27 months or something and wear coarse cotton cl uh, uh, clothing during this time period. And you're not allowed to have sex with your wife for, you know, during this period of mourning. And maybe you violated those rules. Well, Grandpa's feeling the pain, the consequences of that in the afterlife, and now he's going to come back and haunt you until you set it right. Okay? The Terracotta Warriors are the most famous example of the cult of the dead. All right? It's a great time, time frame, too. You know, to, uh, 3rd century BC. It's about 200 years before you have any Buddhist influence in East Asia at all. So there's absolutely no Buddhism yet. Um, and you have the emperor of the first empire, the Qin dynasty, um, you know, basically wanting to take his entire army with him into the afterlife. And it's unbelievable that he pretty much was able to do that. All right. I mean, those, those terracotta warriors, uh, we, we know they're modeled on real faces, real people. And each one is unique. It's not just an assembly line in a factory. There's an enormous amount of time, energy, and resources went into creating everything that that emperor felt he needed to be a powerful emperor, just like he was in life. He, he expects that he'll be able to maintain his status, his role, his privileges, his responsibilities when he goes into the next life. 
And this idea, this expectation, was replicated among all the lower elites as well. The landlords, the dukes, the kings, the princes. And they had lavish tomb burials, in which they're trying to create a miniature version of the life they led, the house that they had, all the possessions that they had. Well, you know, in the old days, you were able to kill your servants and take them with you. Uh, You know, by 0 AD, by 500 BC, you're not seeing human sacrifice anymore. Uh, But you are seeing still an effort with like the terracotta warriors to create, you know, clay representations of the human beings that you expect to take with you into the next world. Okay, and so you have to have the best coffin. Okay, the best, all your best jewelries and everything has to go into that coffin with you to the point where you have such lavish tombs that, you know, tomb tomb raiding becomes quite popular. And we have a, uh, uh, you know, people criticizing this during as early as the Han Dynasty. We see some of our first critics of lavish tombs in which it says, quote, if someone erected a stele on top of a grave mound, which stated, quote, there are many precious jewels and goods here. Be sure to open it for when you do, you will become rich. All your descendants will ride chariots and eat meat. I love how in the old days, eating meat was considered, uh, you know, such an extravagant luxury and a sign that you're at the top of society. My, how things have changed. Um, We're not done with our quote yet. Then people would surely laugh at such a sign. And yet the excessive burials in our day are just like this. He's basically saying, you know, these these lavish burials that are inspired by the cult of the dead um, are basically just signs for for. Tomb Raiders, come here and get valuable jewels um, and other things that you can take. Now, remember, the cult of the dead is something that we learn about oftentimes through elite writings. You know, the traces, elite tombs, the things that the privileged 1 or 2% of society left behind in the archaeological and historical record. All right? We don't know if the rest of the population believed in the cult of the dead necessarily. All right? Um, one thing you have to think about is that the cult of the dead basically maintains the position you had in this life into the next life. Um, You would think that that would be an incentive, that would be a program of belief that would be more attractive to those who had a great life to begin with. (laughs) And if you're a peasant, you know, scratching your head with lice, uh, fleas every night, bed bugs, you're, you barely get enough to eat, um, and you're going out into the fields every day and back-breaking labor, you have to think that you the cult of the dead might not be all that attractive of a belief system. You know, you might think, wait a second, so when I die, I'm just going to do all this again for all eternity in another world? Well, that sucks. There's very little incentive there uh, for the illiterate masses to believe in something like that. Um, so you have to keep those things in mind. Oftentimes, so, you know, this is why I don't like to talk about, oh, Confucianism is this, Taoism is this, Buddhism is that, the cult of the dead is this. Uh, because, you know, oftentimes when you learn about religion that way, you think you're learning about what everyone in society believed. And in fact, you're only learning about what one or 2% of society believed. And you have no idea if the other 98% actually interacted with religion in that way. So this is our perfect transition into the third group the illiterate masses, the majority of the humans who are breathing and living and having their hearts beating. All right, what do they want from religion? What do they want from the other world? Okay, they have very little that's worth preserving or leveraging in this world. They don't have wealth and power, and life kind of sucks. Okay, what they want is they desire daily pragmatic benefits in life 
that will incrementally give them upward mobility and improve their daily lives. And these are usually modest aims. Very few of them believe that they're actually going to become rich and famous overnight and their grandson will be the emperor. All right, they have modest aims of how they can improve their life by interacting with religious doctrine. All right, what do they want in life? They want they want to give birth to sons and they don't want those sons to die, you know, before they reach adulthood. Uh, they want rain to fall on their fields or to stop falling on their fields. Um, they want a, a medical cure for some ailment. They want their roof to stop leaking. Okay, in substance, this is basically the same as what the elites want. They want to increase their wealth and power. But the aims are far more modest here. Also, among the illiterate masses, you're going to see a much greater persistence of what we would refer to as animism and polytheism, much to the chagrin of the Confucian elites, um, well, even the Buddhist and the Taoist elites, uh, who will all regularly condemn the what they will call the heterodox and superstitious customs of their flock and vow to reform them. What they're really just saying is that these are beliefs that don't appear in the orthodox canon and I don't sanction. All right. Another way of saying that is it's outside of my authority, my control. That's why the practitioner, the uh, religious practitioners uh, don't like unorthodox ideas. And they even identify them as hearsay. Well, that's hearsay is in the eye of the beholder. To the illiterate masses, these things aren't hearsay. What is animism? Animism is the idea that humans and natural spirits are both pretty much equal. All right, there isn't a hierarchy. It's not like humans are above all the animals or natural forces. Okay, you ha the world is populated by spirits that live in the natural world around us. And these spirits are specific to locality. They are rooted in their individual location. All right, Th this spirit is, you know, the, the spirit of that hill over there. This is the river spirit. This is the, the river dragon. Or, you know, the, 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 the little sprite or the leprechaun who lives in that forest. All right, and they do devious things. And the spirits seem to harm you, do harm to you, sometimes maybe help you, for no intelligible reason. Okay, there's no rhyme or reason into, in, into why these animistic spirits around you uh, interfere in your life. Okay, so when you try to counter them, when you try to fight back and neutralize these animistic influences, you counter them with antidotes that have no intelligible logic. All right, this is different than what the official sacred text used by the religious practitioners will, 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 will say. They'll say that our cures, our prescriptions for solving a problem or curing an ailment uh, are very logical. Uh, you, know, you can see it here. It's written down in this text. This is how you do it. And there's a reason why it's going to be like this. Um, among the illiterate masses, uh, from our perspective, from the perspective of anyone who's literate looking down at them, you'll say there seems to be no rhyme or reason into why these, an these animistic spirits harm them. And the solutions to making these things stop harming you also don't seem to have a whole lot of logic. All right, you'll have this sort of oral knowledge that will get transmitted in what are known as day books and almanacs, um, in which you, you know, you carry out these pretty kooky rituals, go outside, turn around five times, step five steps in this direction, five steps in that direction, sprinkle some, you know, some ground up cow's testicles over here, uh, pee over there, you know, chicken urine or whatnot. Um, and that will make sure that whatever little sprite is shooting you with arrows in your sleep will stop doing it. 
Okay. <laughs> uh, you'll have auspicious days and inauspicious days, the appropriate and inappropriate times to do certain things in life, the rituals and chants, you know, to our ears, it's, if you see these things, like it's like mumbo jumbo, uh, um, that will minimize the chance that these harmful spirits in the natural world around you, um, or sometimes in your house, you know, you can have a, the mo- malevolent spirit of the, the, the kitchen pot, right? Those existed. Now, some of this stuff we know also overlaps with elite beliefs, things like feng shui, auspicious days for when to get married and how to find the, the perfect match for your son, you know, this sort of stuff. Um, but, you know, to a lesser extent. And the elites aren't talking about demons in your kitchen, you know, demons in your pot. They're going to say, we don't believe in that crap. Uh, but the elites, they, they want to know, how do I recognize, you know, which demon is afflicting me? Which elf? It's coming after me. Which, which malevolent fox spirit is stealing my stuff, stealing my food? Okay. And the solutions often require the sacrifices and expenditure of resources. All right. Um, and the local shaman, uh, the, the local divination expert, oftentimes will be the person that the illiterate masses go to. Sometimes they'll go to a Buddhist priest or a, a Buddhist monk, sorry, or a Taoist priest or a Confucian ritual specialist, but just as often they'll go to someone outside of those three main traditions. All right, the local shaman, the, the, the local divination expert, and they'll contract their services. Um, and they want to know, what spirit is harming me? This is very similar to what we saw with the oracle bones from the Shang Dynasty, in which you have the king of the Shang Dynasty asking which ancestor is responsible for my toothache. All right, not a whole lot has changed in this very basic regard of how human beings interact with the spiritual world and what they hope to get out of it. All right. Pragmatic benefits in their daily life. It's just the scale and the ambition of what these benefits could be are very different depending on whether you're talking about the elites or the illiterate masses. Now, one last thing we have to note is that people of all classes, including women, often went on pilgrimage to holy mountain sites. Okay. And religion in general, was one of the more liberating communities for women, okay, uh, especially in East Asian history. Uh, religion was one of the few avenues by which a woman could legitimately, without censure, without being forcibly, legally brought back to her family, she could leave her family and eschew marriage, refuse to get married if she became, you know, like a Buddhist monk and lived in a monastery. Um, and in that monastery, she would probably become literate. Okay? Um, so that's a, that's a very important aspect when you think about religion. Religion actually was one of the great alternatives for a woman who said, I don't know if I want to have men constantly deciding my life, deciding who I get married with, and you know, then basically have one baby after another, one pregnancy after another, um, until I die in childbirth. Um, if you want to get out of that, it was legally accept- acceptable. To join a Buddhist monastery or become a Taoist priestess, okay? Uh, The Confucians didn't really have too much of a role for women in positions of authority, but the Buddhists and the Taoists did, and they could become literate. One of the rare times you're going to see women who are not the daughters of rich people uh, be able to read and write because they have to be able to keep records of the monastery. They have to be able to read the Buddhist sutras. Um, So anyways, uh, people of all classes, including women, often went on pilgrimage to holy mountain sites, places like Mount Tai in northern China, 
And what are they going there for? The most common prayer of all. If you want to think, you know, again, these pragmatic benefits in your daily life, what do people want from the spiritual world? They want a son. All right, that's by far the most common prayer. Um, and they go up and they find the, the, the female fertility gods. One of the most famous and well-known female fertility god was known as Bixia Yuanjun, which is her name just translates to tur- turquoise jade dawn light. All right, and you go up to her and you give her an offering. You show you're sincere. And maybe she'll allow you to give birth to a son, which is one of the most important things in a woman's life. We'll talk about that more in our talk on gender and the family. All right, but pilgrimage could be expensive. You have travel expenses, uh, you have lodging expenses, and you're going to take several days away from your fields, away from your family. Um, so usually pilgrimage to, Mount Holt, to holy mountain sites was something that you did if you're an illiterate mass, uh, a member of the illiterate masses. You only did that after all other options fail. Okay, um, you know you can't. The local Taoist priest, Buddhist monk, you know whatever. Uh, Confucian ritual specialists. They haven't been able to give you what you needed to solve your problem. Then you finally, as a last resort, um, you take your sick son or whatever, um, and you do a pilgrimage up the mountain. And many of the men had a lot of anxiety about their women doing these pilgrimages because they recognized that it was one of the few times. Religion in general made men very anxious sometimes with regard to women because it was unsettling for many men to see um, a woman being able to make her own decisions without having to defer, ultimately, to a male in a position of authority over her. And pilgrimages to uh, mountains, even if you weren't a uh, Buddhist nun or a Taoist priestess, um, any woman could do that if they could raise the funds, um, or if the um, ailment afflicting you and your family was serious enough, any woman could do that um, and sort of you know get out of the uh, claustrophobic, male-centered environment that you lived in in the household. Elite educated males, right, the literate males, the patronizing elites, um, you know, they're usually the, 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 drawn from the Confucian classes, and they usually went to these holy mountain sites for literary communion, where, you know, they know, you know I, I, I want to go visit the site where the Tang poet Du Fu uh, composed a famous poem or the first emperor of the Qin dynasty um, did, a, you know, did a pilgrimage here to commune with heaven and left a stele with an inscription of what he did, or an inscription of his prayer at the top of the mountain. I want to go see that. Okay, That's the sort of thing that the uh, literate elites would go to the holy mountain sites. Uh, it's more of a secular engagement because, again, they take great pride in saying, at least the Confucian elites take great pride in saying, I'm not superstitious. Okay, there's just heaven above, and the emperor is the son of heaven, and that's the extent of my superstition or belief in sort of superhuman, su- supernatural forces. All right. Um, now, finally, let's bring all these religions together. The way that you should think about religion, ancient religion in the Huaxia cultural sphere, is that it was syncretic, syncretism. All right. Don't always think of a distinct Buddhism, Confucianism, and Taoism. All right. In some respects these things could be seen as separate, usually among the literate 1%, whether they were religious practitioners or the patronizing elite. But for pretty much the 98% of the rest of the population, the it was very difficult to tell these different religions apart. All right, elements of all of them sort of got thrown into the blender 
and you picked and choose without realizing what you were picking and choosing, you know, which religion that actually came from. Okay? And each religious tradition will contribute elements, new elements, to the melting pot. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the people who are consuming that are realize where these new elements come from. For instance, Buddhism will contribute to the Huaxia view of, you know, the, the afterlife, a much more vivid afterworld than we ever saw with the cult of the dead. The cult of the dead has zero imagination whatsoever. Uh, the Buddhist afterlife will have a significant uh, number of, you know, levels of heavens, levels of hell, endless universes that are created and destroyed, a moral system of rewards and punishments for earthly behavior. Uh, the Buddhist, more than anyone else, will moralize the afterworld. I'll say, you know, no, the afterworld is not just a carbon copy of the life you lived when you were uh, alive. Uh, you have to earn your way into a favorable afterworld. Buddhism is responsible for doing that with the, you know, the system of karma and rewards and punishments for earthly behavior. And Buddhism, of course, as most people know, is gonna, it, it, it's, it's imported with many changes from India with a cause, complex cosmology that is already ready-made. It's, you know, it's already imported, ready-made into China, and then further adapted and evolves. And the version of Buddhism that will be exported into China is what's known as the, Ma, the Mahayana school. All right, as opposed to the Theravada school, which is still uh, quite popular in Southeast Asia today, places like Thailand and Burma, if you visit these places, what, you, what you'll see is Theravada Buddhism. Um, what Mahayana Buddhism is, is they say we, are, we offer a simplified uh, uh, path to salvation for everyone in society. Whereas Theravada Buddhism, which the Mahayanas will refer to pejoratively as Hinayana, Hinayana meaning the lesser vehicle, Mahayana meaning the greater vehicle, because we're greater, we, we offer salvation to more people. Uh, in Theravada slash Hinayana Buddhism, you pretty much have to join a monastery. All right? You have to be a monastic professional, someone who devotes their life to becoming a Buddhist monk and learning all the doctrines and whatnot if you truly want salvation in the next world. All right, it's very difficult for the common masses to sort of get on board with that. Uh, the Mahayana school says, no, 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 we've simplified the process of salvation, and it's available to everyone. You don't have to join the monastery to hold out the promise of having a better life in the next world than you had in this one. Now, Buddhism has a constant give and take with Taoism and Confucianism. All right, it's easy to see why Buddhism takes so quickly in China. Uh, it'll borrow from the Taoist metaphysical vocabulary. It'll borrow from the Confucian idea of hierarchy. It will integrate uh, mentious ideas about populism and the moral consequences of the people who are in power and their relationship with the people. Uh, Xunzu's transformation and rights, all these things get mixed in with Buddhism. And Buddhism itself will bring in a whole colorful pantheon of gods that will mix with local Chinese gods and animistic gods and historical figures. And all these things will be presented to the people in monasteries, and, you know, Buddhist monasteries, Taoist temples, rock cliff carvings that everyone can see. In the age before TV and whatnot, and widespread publication of books, the, these Public works of religious art are where most people are going to be exposed 
to their view of what the afterlife looks like. And I want to read an example from a, uh, a Finnish traveler who was passing through China in the first decade of the 20th century. And he's describing Buddhist murals that he sees in northwestern China. These are, this is the, when, when, when you hear me read this description, you should be thinking, this is how most people experience religion. This is how they understand the way they're supposed to act and what's in store for them in the afterworld. Because they aren't reading the sutras. They aren't reading the Analects. Right? They aren't reading the classic of virtue in the way. They're looking at murals like this. Quote, The twelve gods of hell, larger than life-size, sit along the walls in twelve larger niches, each with two guards with terrifying faces by their sides. There are white-bearded ancients who sit watching with the mildest of expressions, the horrors being perpetrated at their feet, and red, red-bearded giants apparently burning to leap down from their niches, consumed with desire to torture some poor sinner to death with their own hands. Horrible scenes are depicted on the floor, everything being reproduced with the crudest realism. You see intestines being pulled out with long tongs, whole bodies being flayed, skulls being sawn asunder, eyes being gouged out from being pecked out by a rooster, women being hanged by their breasts, tongues being cut off, people being broken on the wheel, or crushed so that gobbets of flesh and streams of blood are pressed from between the grindstones, while a pair of feet and finely embroidered women's shoes protrude from the hollows in the middle. Such horrors should surely suffice to rid the inhabitants of this town of any desire to sin. This is going to be the vivid, terrifying image of hell. In this case, a Buddhist hell. But again, that's often not that 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 that, that distinction is often lost, lost on the masses who are, you know, merging all these religious traditions together. If you don't do good in this world, you're going to this hell. It's like a Hieronymus Bosch painting from medieval Europe. Um, you know, if you go to anywhere in East Asia today and you visit an, enough temples, enough Buddhist monasteries, you'll see murals like this. I've seen them myself traveling around. Uh, you know, they're. They're supposed to shock you into compliant behavior in this world. But as I said, most people can't differentiate among the three belief systems. So you think instead of a syncretic Hua Xia religion that combines elements of all three. Okay. Also, don't assume that even the majority of the elites actually have a coherent knowledge of formal doctrines and concepts. Right, the sort of things that you'll read in a textbook, a textbook on Buddhism, and it'll introduce the, you know, the seven holy truths and all this sort of stuff. Most people don't know that stuff. Right, what are the Ten Commandments if you're a Christian? Can you name off each one of them verbatim? I highly doubt it. Yeah, some of you probably can, but most of you probably can't. All right. For most people in most places, religion was simply a utilitarian tool to improve one's chances for fortune and guard against misfortune. And that's it. That's it. Distinct practical knowledge was limited to which religious professional you go to when you need to hire their skills. You think you need a potion? Or the results of alchemy, something you're going to ingest in your body to, you know, to fix whatever your ailment is, go to the Taoists. The Taoists are the ones who are, who are 
you know, experts in mixing potions, uh, you know, uh, harnessing natural mineral elements of the earth into potions that can maybe give you immortality, get this demon out of here, cure your body of this or that, whatever it might be. Right, you go to the Taoists for that if you want to ingest something. If you think you, your, your problem has to do with rituals, someone died and you got to have a funeral or a marriage ceremony or whatever it might be, you go to a Confucian expert for that. If we're thinking about you know morality here and gaining karmic merit or maybe fighting hostile spirits, uh, sometimes a Taoist can do that as well, but oftentimes you're going to go to a Buddhist monk for that. Now, the Buddhist monks oftentimes will be interpreted as... Um, sort of sorcerers, really. Uh, of all the religious practitioners, Buddhist monks will often um, be seen as the ones who have these supernatural, you know, like Merlin, if you think about like, you know, with King Arthur, the sorcerer Merlin in the Christian tradition, uh, Buddhist monks will often be seen to have these magical powers um, that they can bring to bear, to bring order to the world, to beat bad guys, you know, this sorts of thing. So what is, what is not included in this syncretic religion. What is not included is Islam. Okay, Islam, as I said before, is a major religion that will have tons of converts and true believers throughout East Asia. Um, but it, at least in the Huaxia cultural sphere, it's not going to be as syncretic. Among the syncretic religions, all right, you have elements of animism, polytheism, meaning multiple gods, monotheism, one god, and dualism, two gods. In fact, nearly all religions throughout the world include all of these elements. Think about Christianity. Often they go Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. Those are all monotheistic religions. They often get portrayed like that. Oh, really? Are they? Yes, they have a monotheistic god, but they also have a devil, Okay, force of bad and force of good, that's dualism. Heaven and hell, that's dualism. Christianity also has a whole pantheon of holy saints. People who, you know, were exemplars of moral virtue and compassion in their life. And after they died, they were canonized as saints. And then you have holy saint days. You have saint days all over Europe. Different saints for different places and different times. And they're imagined to have special powers. If you, uh, you know, pay tribute to them and pray to them, that's polytheism. The Holy Ghost, the Virgin Mary, that's polytheism. Okay. Um, and then you also have animist ghosts as well. Animist spirits will continue to persist at the local level, not an official Christian doctrine, but at the local level, actual practice among the people, the animist beliefs do not totally disappear. All right, now let's turn back to the Huaxia culture sphere, the Confucians. You have ancestor worship, right? The ancestors become spirits of a sort. They become spiritual beings who influence your life and can cause a, and can cause a toothache. That's polytheism. You have the, the, the worship of Confucius, or perhaps the worship of the emperor as the son of heaven. That's a monotheistic belief. You also have an underworld where the ancestors live, or you know, an other world, and yet you have heaven above. That's dualism. The Buddhists, you have the Buddha, okay, so that's monotheism. 
So Buddhism must be a monotheistic religion, right? Many Westerners, when they first encountered Buddhism, they actually said, oh, Buddhism is the best religion of the Orient uh, because it's the one that's most similar to ours. We are monotheistic religions, and so is Buddhism. It's not like uh, Hinduism was often looked down upon as polytheistic. Polytheism was seen as below monotheism. That's a bunch of crap. Buddhism also has a heaven and a hell. That's dualism. They also have bodhisattvas, which are basically your Christian saints. That's polytheism. And they also have animist ghosts. Okay? So, you know, when you start looking at religion, how it's actually practiced, as opposed to official doctrine, you start realizing that it's pretty messy. It's pretty messy, and it's pretty complex. And syncretism is the order of the day among most of these religions. All right, that's enough of that. Next time, we're going to um, focus on the one religion that didn't get a whole lot of treatment here because it's not really one of the syncretic religions in East Asia, but it's prominent enough that we still need to have a whole session in which we talk about it. Episode 14, Islam in China. I hope you'll join me. (laughs) 